0: Let's pray together. In the quietness of this moment, as we get our hearts before the Lord, would you ask the Lord to speak to your heart? Now, would you pray for that one that's on your right, maybe on your left, pray for them that God would meet them at their point of need this morning. Father, we do come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus. We ask you, Lord, do something great in our life this morning. Pray that you would move in our heart. God, I pray for those that maybe are wondering, am I really saved? Am I really celebrating Christmas as a believer? I pray, God, that we would, as we address the gift of the Lord this morning, pray that you would speak to all those hearts in a very special way. We'll pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated just for a moment. I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, just share a few things uh, with you in the future. I'm in a series of messages, and next week is going to be a very important message, I think. And um, next week I'll be preaching on Christmas grace as it pertains to the voice. You know, I this is not one of those things where I'm trying out for the voice or anything like that, you know but um, it's just simply a message about the voice of christmas and so uh, be sure to uh, uh, mark your calendars for that look forward to that and then also uh, this afternoon we're going to be having um, the uh, dinner with the pastor and with other pastors as well and so if you're interested in that never attended that make sure that gets uh, on your little card this morning gets put in the offering plate and we'll still reserve a, a meal for you is a time where we come together uh, we eat a meal, a nice meal, and then uh, just kind of share a little bit about my life, about the church, and get to know you a little bit better. And so we've got a good crowd coming this afternoon. If you'd like to join them, uh, we would uh, welcome you to do that. Now, as we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, as we just open up our Bibles, you've heard it said before so many times, it's, it's the gift, it's the thought that counts, right? Right? I mean, you know, people are buying Christmas gifts right now you're probably uh, buying gifts, maybe gift cards, you're buying different things, and people say, well, it's, it's really the thought behind the gift that really counts. But it's amazing to me that the more we give someone, the bigger thought we have of them. As a matter of fact, you know what you buy someone tells me and tells other people and tells them about the kind of relationship you have with them. For example... Here's a guy dating a girl. Maybe he's been dating her for about three months. He says, what do I get her for Christmas? I mean, that's a struggle, right? And you think, well, if I get her this $3,000 bracelet, well, that's saying that I'm into this too much. It may scare her off. She's not going to have anything to do with me. But if I buy her, I don't know, a, a cover for, you know, a $10 cover for her iPhone or something, um, she's not going to think, she's going to think, well, I don't, I don't think much of her. And so there's a struggle going on here. Because what you give to someone says something about your relationship with them. Well, certainly Jesus has given us a great gift. And it says something about our relationship with him or what we are giving back to him as well. And so as we open up to Isaiah chapter 9, I'm beginning a series of messages on the grace of Christmas or Christmas grace. And I'll be looking at it in four different aspects. This morning we're going to be looking at the gift itself. The gift of God that God has given us. In other words, when we we open up a box on on Christmas morning, we open it up, we see what's in there, and we begin to pull things out. What's in the box? You know, the Bible says that the gift of Jesus Christ that he's given us is like the pearl of great price. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus said a A man found a pearl, and he went out and sold everything that he had in order to get this one pearl. And so what about the pearl? What about the gift this morning? I want to look at this passage here in four ways, but as we open it up, you need to understand that this Isaiah 9 is like an oasis of hope in the midst of really a lot of warning and judgment. It's been said that the book of Isaiah is like a miniature Bible. And it's amazing that it's right in the middle of your Bible. If you turn to it this morning, and you don't have maps and a concordance at the end and all the table of contents stuff at the front, you just open it up, pretty much falls uh, somewhere around the book of Isaiah. But the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have to do really with warning and judgment. And the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, has more warning and judgment than it probably does promises. The second half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, are like the 27 chapters, 27 books of the New Testament filled with grace and hope. But in the midst of all the warnings and the judgment to the nation of Judah, if it doesn't repent, God's going to conquer them uh, with another nation, and he eventually did that. Right here in the midst of chapter 9 is an oasis of hope, a hope that God is going to send someone a free gift for us in order to do something great in our life. And I want us to look at this uh, in really four points this morning. First of all, I want us to see a gift that reveals. Secondly, a gift that rescues. Thirdly, a gift that rules. And that's where we sort of have a little bit of a problem with it. We have a little problem with rescuing, but a big problem with the one, that word rule. And then finally, a gift that must be received. And certainly on a time like this, around Christmas time, we think about our salvation experience, and it's very difficult to preach about the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ without bringing in the most important subject in all the Bible, the theme of the Bible, which is our salvation in Christ. So I want us to look at it. First of all, as we open up this passage, remember, the greater the gift, the greater the gift, the more the thought. But, and here's the other thing you need to think about. The greater the sacrifice of the gift, the more the thought. In other words, if somebody, some multi-billionaire gave a girl a $3,000 bracelet, it's not going to mean as much as if it's a person paycheck to paycheck giving her that same bracelet. So let's look at it. First of all, there's a gift here that reveals something. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 9. But there, were, there will be no more gloom, he says. for Now listen to that. He's just coming out of all the gloom in chapter 8. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who has been in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. To just sort of give you a little perspective here as he makes this transition into the promise. These two areas, Zebulun, Naphtali are basically outliers, just like Galilee. And if you remember the story of Jesus, Jesus was from Nazareth. One of the disciples even said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was an outlier. It was in Galilee. Galilee was kind of an outlier where people would look down on someone. He says, they're in darkness, but I'm going to bring them to a new light. He uses verse 1 to transition from the past, or his present, To his future, which is is also our past since Jesus Christ has died on the cross. Look in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. He shall multiply the nation. You shall increase with their gladness. Now here he's talking about something of a light. He says, you're in darkness, and this is true with the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the land of of Galilee in that day as well. We can look at this, and we can understand that they were in some kind of spiritual darkness. And God says, now I'm going to bring you to the light. Now, when we think about darkness, we think about really a dark shadow that stands over us. In the Bible, it represents a lack of light. It represents death. And it represents the things that uh, of a of lack of knowledge of God, a lack of light, lack, lack of knowledge, not really knowing about the things of God. The, the picture of darkness in the Bible is really something of, of, like I said, of death. It's like some of you uh, ate turkey for Thanksgiving, right? How many of you ate t- turkey? Any turkey eaters? For, how many of you are still eating turkey? You know, raise your hand. All right, several of you, and will be probably for a while. All right, suppose you had a trip to take right after Thanksgiving. In other words, you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner with your family, and then immediately you you were going to go see another family member and stay for, say, two or three weeks. And you forgot to put away the turkey. And you come back two, three weeks later. What is that turkey going to be like? Uh, Yeah, molding, and what else? Rotten and stink up your house. Why? Because that is the picture of death. It continually dies all the time. That's what the picture of us in the Bible as well. We're born in this world, and one day we're going to pass from this world. It's a darkness, and without the light of God, we're going to be dead. We're going to die eternally. But it also talks about a revelation here that God has revealed himself to us, we can read about that in verse two, where the darkness will see that they're going to see the light, the light will shine on them, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase with your gladness, they'll be glad in your presence, and with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice with, as they divide the spoil. It's a time of celebration. look in verse six, "For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us." He said, there's going to be a gift, and this gift is going to to Uh, Have the light within him now you and I have talked about this before how you and I cannot really grasp the things of God unless God reveals them to us Romans 1 we talked about that a few weeks ago where we you know the atheist true story he says I searched and I searched and I argued against God and argued against God for decades and I would debate all these people about all the apologetics, or what we call the proofs of the faith, and it never touched me until God just suddenly revealed one day to me, I am here. God reveals Himself in our heart. He does it through nature, the Bible says. He does it just the innate knowledge within us. But now, see that, what we said, that that was general Revelation. Everybody gets that, but now there's a specific revelation, a special revelation. The light will come and reveal God to us, and of course, His name was Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And so, it's light for the atheist. it's light, it's knowledge of God For those who have never received Christ, it's knowledge of God and a revelation of God. For those who doubt God, those even us that are Christians who wonder if God's going to come through, there's a light here that God says, I'm going to send you one day, and he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. He says this light reveals there's a hope for you. There's a revelation for you, and this revelation, there's a hope for you that things are not only going to work out better in this life, but also, more importantly, in the light to come. Well, he says that this gift brings a revelation. It brings something to us that reveals. And one of the things he reveals to us through his Son is the need that's within our heart. A need for hope, a need for rescuing. And that's the second thing we see here in verse 3 through 5. We see a gift that rescues. He says in verse 4, for you shall break the yoke. This yoke, what is, what is a yoke? It's a bondage. The yoke upon an oxen was, was something to guide them, but it was also a bondage a symbol in the Bible. A, a yoke of their burden, a staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as in the battle of Midians. The Midians, back in Judges chapter 6 and 7, were oppressors to the nation of Israel. And he raised up a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon with his 300 soldiers conquered the entire nation because God wanted them with only 300 so he and alone would get the glory in order to build our faith. Here we find that the writer here, Isaiah, is comparing this. He says, one day someone's going to come along and rescue us. Now here's the problem to the whole Christmas story. Most people do not realize they need a rescue. They don't realize their need, their spiritual need in Christ. All of us have you might, what my, uh, you might call a secret code of behavior and a conduct within our conscious mind. And this code of conduct says, this is the way I need to act in order to feel good about myself. Or this is the way I need to act in order to at least be accepting of myself. And that's why we judge others. Somebody else does something that's not according to our code of conduct, and we automatically maybe reject that behavior. And somebody else is doing the same to us. It's not a biblical code necessarily, but although it could be some things in the Bible. But basically, it's a code of conduct, and we say, therefore, I'm doing fine. I'm obeying my own code of conduct. And so here's the person who has his own code of conduct, who's on his deathbed. And um, he looks up to the preacher, the pastor, and he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me, pastor. I'm really, really scared. All I know is I've done the best I could. But he hasn't, has he? Nobody can say they've done the best they could do. And there's the problem. We get to that point and we're, we're scared because... We think, I've done this, and I've done, and and God, I've done the, no, probably you could do better even in how you're listening to this message. I could do better in how, okay, you want to amen? I could do better in my delivering the message, I'm sure. I got a lot more amens about that. Okay. I'm going to call on somebody then to finish the message. Who will it be? Uh, you get up tomorrow morning, and you go to work, and at the end of the day, you thought, eh, I could have done better. All of us could do better. We know better. We know that we've, we've never done the best, the very best that we could. We always thought we could do better. And there, there is, lies the insecurity. There lies the need for a rescue. When God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God says you need a rescue in your life. Now, we look at this and we think, oh, you know, I'm self-sufficient. Something, uh, when somebody gives you something of self-help or you buy something for yourself, what you're saying is I'm insufficient, I need help. You you might buy me for Christmas, you might buy me a diet book. And maybe a a book of something like, I don't know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And you think okay you know and i look at myself and say okay i'm fat and i'm obnoxious but what's the point and uh but you look and you say i need to buy something for someone to help them because they're not self-sufficient when you and i recognize the fact that we need rescuing that's what we're admitting i am not sufficient within within myself and that is against Everything that we've ever thought about ourselves or ever thought about the person, especially the American, that can raise himself up by his own bootstraps and do the things that he needs to do. And you think, the more freedom I have and the less bondage I have to this world, then the better off I am. But as we said in the, in the message on the prodigal son, the more freedom you gain away from God, the more you yearn for a home. You yearn for that place that you, of security, that place of a presence, of love, and acceptance. And the prodigal son left, and he came back to what he wanted in life. We need rescuing. And Jesus has come along, and he has come to rescue. One of the disservices I think we, we sometimes do when we try to share Christ with someone is we talk about Jesus Christ dying because He loves us. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is a great thing spiritual, for spiritual laws. I've used that so many times. And so we say, oh, God loves you. But what you have to understand is that little track also says God loves you, and He proved that by dying for you for, for a reason. He died for us for our sins. Matthew puts it this way. She will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There you are. You're you, you running across a bridge. You know the movie, like It's a Wonderful Life or something. And you're running across a bridge, and you see this whole family that, man, you're really close to. And you think, you know, they're looking, on, hey, what you are you looking off the bridge for? Well, uh, we were just thinking, wow. And I mean, this is a morbid thought, but what, what if somebody fell off this bridge? They'd freeze to death before anybody could save them. And you say, I'll show you how much I love you and your family, and you jump in. And the family looks at one another and scratches your head. Well, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that he loves us, but what was the purpose of that? He just committed suicide. Now, on the other hand, if suddenly you are walking along and one of those same friends fell into the water, and you say, I'll save them, and you jump in, You jumped in for a reason. You jumped in for a purpose. Without us having to be rescued, Jesus Christ would have died for nothing. He would have committed suicide because the Bible says he gave himself up to the Romans. They couldn't take his life unless the Father willed that it would happen. So all he did was just kill himself. No, he didn't do that. He came and he died on the cross for a reason. He came for a reason because we're sinners separated from God and we need rescuing because no self help book is gonna help me to overcome what's going on in my life. Only Jesus can do that. And at the end of this message, I'm gonna ask you if you want to receive Christ, if you want to receive that pearl of great price. If you've never done that today, I hope and pray it will be your day. But I want us to look at something else because I want to see the full picture of what's going on here. Because on the one hand, we say, oh, yes, I do need rescuing. Yes, I have sinned at least one time in my life. And if I do, if I have done that, then certainly I need rescuing. But on the other hand, wow, I want to live my own life. And so let's look at the third thing. This is a gift that rules. Notice what it says in verse 6. I can skip there. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Skip to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. He's talking about setting up an earthly kingdom but here we find, if we had time this morning, there are verses after verse after verse in the New Testament that apply this to the rulership of God in our life. He not only came to rescue, to reveal himself, and say, this is who, you want to know who God is? Study the life of Jesus Christ. He's revealed him. He's, the Bible says in John 1.18, he's, he's exegeted him. He's interpreted him. That's what it means to He's interpreted God for us. He interprets the, the Bible for us. And so as he's explained him, he says, now I've explained the Lord as much as I'm going to explain to you. we get to heaven, and then I've come to rescue you, and once I have rescued you, I'm going to be the government in your heart. I'm going to rule in your life. And that's so important. Why is that important? Why, why would that be important for you and me, you know, or you and I, I, don't, I don't, anyway, uh, to surrender our heart. Now, think about what, what we're saying here. I'm not going to necessarily do everything I want to do. I want to do what God wants me to do. Wow, that is a jump. Why would that be important? It's important because without it, you have no security. Amen. You just don't. You know, we talk about in our government... And a transition period and you've heard this I've heard this uh, bantered on the news that the reason why America is so safe and secure is that we can transition from one power to the next run one regime to the next why are we comforted here and why why are the people that are protesting what are they doing they're taking counsel their fears they're not secure what about us? Well, most, most people kind of relax in every election. You know, you, you might be happy. You might be disappointed. But you think, hey, you know, we're, we're bigger than one guy. There's security there because you know there's a rulership in place. God, it's important for God to rule our life and for us to submit to him for that same type of security. How do you know the future is going to be good for you? Well, you don't. In fact, if you look through history, it may, not, it may not be all what we want it to be. I mean, how many people reach the age of 70 or 80 years old and look back on their life and say, you know, uh, you know, regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. How many people look back and say, you know, my life ended up exactly where I thought it would go? Almost no one. How do you have that kind of security? How do you have the security when you don't know the future? How do you have the security when you don't have the power to mold the future? That's why we want power in our life. Nietzsche said, the greatest quest of man is power, and he's probably right. Because we want the power in order to control circumstances in our life, control ourselves, control our family, control our finances, control what's going on. And when we can't control, we become insecure, fearful, and we make bad decisions. You take counsel of your fears, bad decisions erupt. And so what kind of ruler is it talking about here? Look with me. In verse, um, verse 6, his name will be called. Now, this is important because his name was called Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from his sins. His name is called Emmanuel, the Bible says, a title, because it means God with us. Every name of God and every name for Jesus Christ, the Son, has something to do with either his character or what he does. Notice it says he's wonderful. He's the wonder worker. He's the source, literally in the Hebrew, of everything that's beautiful in our life. He says, he's the wonderful counselor. Really, these two terms go together. It speaks here of wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor in the sense that he guides us with all wisdom. That means, as I live my life, he's going he's to want what's best for me. He's going to guide me in the way, as the Bible says, everlasting. He's going to guide me in the way of things that count. He's going to guide you and I in a sense of what, what's ever good and best for us, and then we give him most glory. He's the wonderful counselor, the one of great wisdom that we have in life. He's the one that's going to come and fix things, not only in eternity, but he's talking about right here, a rulership right here on earth in our hearts. He's come to fix you. So I know we don't have basements here in Florida. I just, we just took a trip up to North Georgia on vacation, and uh, they do have basements there. And I remember we had an upstairs, downstairs, and, and kind of a split-level kind of situation in our house on Purkle Road in Norcross, Georgia, when my kids were very small before we moved here. And, you know, you've done this as well, haven't you? When when the kids are downstairs or upstairs, we'll just say downstairs, and we'll just say, hey, y'all be quiet down there. Y'all quit fussing down there. I would say fussing now that I'm in Florida, but back then I was in Georgia, so I said fussing. Quit fussing. And what we're saying is, fix it. And this is what you say, right? You don't want me to come down there. (laughs) Right? And no, they do. They do because they're wondering how funny this is going to be and see you as mad as you are. And so you're going to come down there and fix everything. Do we really expect, say, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, at the time my boys were were there, to say um, the oldest one to say maybe to the youngest one here? You play with my toy. I insist. (laughs) And the six-year-old said, no, it would do me great pleasure and honor (laughs) if you would play with this toy yourself since it does uh, belong in your possession and you are the original recipient of this gift. (laughs) Do you really expect that? No, you don't expect that because they can't fix it on their own. I needed or you needed to go downstairs and help them fix it because they are, can I say this, selfish. Amen. Amen. Now here's the catch. We're still selfish. Really. I mean, I know you don't act that way. You don't yell and scream at people down in the basement or whatever because society says don't do that. You are a nutcase if you do that. So you don't do that. But you just sort of connive ways that you can get that toy. We live that way, and we can't fix it on our own. So the wonderful counselor has come to the earth not only to give us eternal life, but to fix our lives here. He's the great gift. We open up the box. Whoa, look at this. He reveals God to us. He rescues us. He he, he can rule over us. Does he rule over you? Does he rule over me? Does he rule over our life? It says, listen to this, he's the mighty God. That, that, That word is El Gabor in the Hebrew. It means the hero. He's the one that comes down to the basement. He's the hero wearing the cape. And rescues us and fixes our life. That's the gift that he offers. He's the eternal Father. He is the originator, the creation creator of everything. He's the Prince of Peace. The only way that you can have peace is have forgiveness of all your sin. Otherwise, you're going to be weighed down with guilt all of your life. Weighed down, weighed down with regrets. And again, no one is going to be on their deathbed said, you know. They really believe I've done the best I could. What they're really saying is, I'm not perfect. And I did the best I could in the circumstances I found myself in. Which means, really, I'm a sinner separated from God. I wasn't rescued. And so I did the best I could with what I could do on my own. And it wasn't good enough. That's what we're saying. He reveals himself. He rescues He. He wants to rule in our life so the question is if you take salvation as it should be taken that is I've repented of my sin repentance means I'm turning around I'm going an opposite direction I'm running my own life doing my own thing ruling my own life and I'm turning around now and I'm following God I was my master the master of my soul but now Jesus is the master of my soul. That's salvation. If that is true, has that happened to you? Because this gift, in order to apply to our life, has to be received. Look with me in verse, at the end of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. His passion, his zeal, he says, he's going to do it. Thousands of years later, that's what, that's what happened. Jesus died, came and died on the cross for our sins. He was risen from from the grave on the third day. All this happened. He says his zeal will make it happen. And Jesus said, this is so valuable. It's like a man who came along and said, I found a treasure. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm just going to buy the field. And he sold everything he had. By the field with the treasure on it then he goes on to say this again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value he went and sold all that he had and bought it and I know what you're thinking and I know the reason why you're gonna say "Mm, I'm gonna think about this for a while I don't know about this uh, rescue and, and do I really need that? Okay, maybe I do. And the rulership, not ready for that. Then you haven't recognized the pearl of great price. But pastor, you don't understand. You know, if I, if I do that, I mean, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're involved in a sexual sin. Oh, I can't give that up. Haven't found the pearl of great price. But I may have to quit eating something or or doing this, or I may have to start giving my money away to the poor. You know, maybe God wants me to do something like that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe I'll I'll get sent to Africa as a missionary and get shot with a poison dart or chased by a Bengal tiger or something. Well, that's not going to happen. That's exaggeration. But we tell ourselves that. But what we're really telling ourselves is, I understand the value of Jesus. He's a fine pearl but he's just not worth selling everything I have to get that one pearl. He's not, you know, salvation's free. But when we do that, listen, salvation is like this. We find it. And we thought, oh, I can't believe it. I can't, I can't believe it. Jesus would die for me. Jesus would rise again on the, on the third day for me. He's sitting in the right hand of the Father to pray for me. For me, God would do this. And it's so valuable, we're consumed, we're overwhelmed with the value of that salvation and that great gift. Now, we're willing to say, "What, what do you mean what I eat or what I do or the money that I have? Who cares? I just want Jesus. Have you come to the place in your life where you've recognized It's really a pearl of great price. And there's nothing that compares. And you're willing to say, okay, whatever it is, God, you got it. I'm turning away being the master of my own life and turning toward you. That's the message of Christmas. He has come in his presence to reveal God, to rescue us and to rule in our life. With heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, with no one looking around, the quietness of this moment. I told you a few moments ago that I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord into your heart, and I want to give you that opportunity right now. If that's the prayer of your heart, if you could recognize this morning something you've never recognized before, and that is, Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's the gift that just keeps on giving, and you're thinking, well well, pastor now, wait a minute, I've been saved. Has he, has he been your Lord? Has he been your master? well, I've been baptized. I I didn't ask that. Baptism is a profession of what has already gone on in your heart. Do you know that Jesus Christ has saved you and because you have recognized him as that pearl, that great gift, that hidden treasure, and you want him more than anything else? If that's the prayer of your heart today, pray this prayer with me right now silently as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, Thank you for revealing the Father to me. Thank you for dying on the cross to rescue me. Thank you for rising from the dead to be my master. God, there's nothing like you. Nothing. And I give my heart and my life to you as I invite you into my heart. Forgive me of my sin of running my own life. And I turn to you to be the master of my heart, my soul, my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way? Again, Christmas time is a time to reflect upon the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our own salvation, how it applies to us. If we miss that, we can talk about all the other things about Christmas and all the scriptural stuff about Christmas, but it all comes down to that one thing. Do we know, do we know for sure that Jesus lives in our heart? Well, if you prayed that prayer with me, we, we want to know that. And so you have the welcome card in front of you this morning. I trust that you filled out the first part of it already in the front. But on the back of the card, it says, my decision today, I've decided to surrender my life to Christ and begin a personal relationship with him. Now, by putting a check on that box, you're just simply saying, "I prayed the prayer with the pastor." And we want to do something to to follow up with you, give you some literature, give you some material. You know, you you need assurance that what you did was really the real thing. And so, we would like to talk to you about that. So, uh, fill that card out, and you say, "Well, now, wait a minute. I'm I feel moved of the God's Spirit right now." And that's why we have these gentlemen standing up in front of you, and I'm here as well. We're going to sing a song, what we call an invitation. And it's a time where Christians may come to the altar and say, I just want to pray for a lost loved one. I want to pray for my own life. I want to pray to rededicate myself to the Lord. And during this Christmas season, whatever, you know, I want to pray for my prodigal friend or brother or sister or um, the one that is lost and needs to come back to the Lord. The altar is open. But if you pray to receive Christ, I want you to come and take one of these guys by the hand bring a card with you and just say, I want to talk to somebody right now. We'll pray with you. All right? So let's all stand together. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, pray for those around us as the band leads us in this song. I'm praying for you. You come.